This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Thursday the 4th of February. And late last night, Norman, we got some a late night press conference from Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews, which was quite unexpected and unsurprisingly, I suppose, given the lateness of the hour, the reason was a really serious one. There's been another case of a hotel quarantine breach in Melbourne. So the case is a 26-year-old man who'd been working as a resident support officer as part of the Australian Open Quarantine Program. And we've heard that he's now in a health hotel and his household contacts have been isolated. And uh, he's tested positive to coronavirus, as we said. So what do we know about this case and what are we likely to see come to light in the coming days? Well, he was he did test negative at the end of a shift and um, but then got symptoms and came forward for testing. So the person's done the right thing. We know that at least at the time of us talking of several places that this person visited in Keysborough, Noble Park. So what we know here is what we know already, which is that hotel quarantine is high risk. The curious thing about this story, again, as we know it, as we speak, which is not long after the Premier has given the initial news, is that there is no contact with the six positive cases in the Grand Hyatt. So how did this person catch coronavirus? Uh, you know, And that must have them worried because it might mean that he's not patient zero. He might be patient six. In other words, that there were there was a chain of transmission and a hidden cluster at the Grand Hyatt. And this man is just one manifestation because he's got symptoms. So obviously they're going to go back and they're going to check everybody else at the Grand Hyatt. But it's likely or significantly possible that he's a secondary spread and not the primary spread. So somebody's been in touch with one of the six cases and then passed it on. So they're going to have to go back in time to sort all that out. And then you go forward in terms of the people that this person might have come in contact with. And as they find out with the Black Rock uh, episode after New Year, around New Year in Melbourne, you can have a lot of contacts in a short space of time. That's right. So Victoria is obviously really sensitised to this because they've suffered so much in the past year with their really hard lockdown and the, the large number of cases that they had there. But it's going to take a couple of days till they get genomic sequencing back, the way they can trace the genomic footprint of this virus and maybe figure out where it came from. Uh, they haven't gone into a hard lockdown, though, but they have gone to pretty tight restrictions only 15 people for private gatherings, masks inside, no matter where you are, public or private, and keeping uh, very low numbers of very low proportions of workers in workplaces. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty, it, as far as lockdown goes, it's pretty mild. It's not really a lockdown. And you can contrast this to Western Australia. And people will be saying, well, why does, you know, same situation, one person, uh, a one person leak from hotel quarantine. Why does WA go into lockdown when Melbourne doesn't? And I think it does go to the issue of confidence and they've had months of both the public in Western Australia moving around and feeling fairly free and not really being able to distance, not wearing masks and so on. And also the contact tracers starting from a standing, you know, getting up from a standing start. And I'm sure they're fine and it looks as if they're doing a really great job, but they wouldn't have had confidence that they were really on it and ready to go, I suspect, behind the scenes and therefore it was just safer to put things under uh, you know, under lock and key. So, yeah, on the subject of WA, it was another day of zero spread there, which is fantastic news for them. But interestingly and coincidentally, staying in Melbourne, there was another 
Case of a problem with hotel quarantine. A person who was in quarantine, who'd come in from overseas, who it seems as though she has caught coronavirus while in quarantine because they did genomic testing and found that she has the exact same strain as another family who were in the same hotel just across the corridor from her. So, so Norma, does this tell us any more about how the coronavirus spreads? you just got to be careful with these sorts of stories. Common things occur commonly in terms of what you know rather than reinventing stuff. So you've just got to be really sure that these two families didn't come in contact with each other and that's how it spread. Um, if they're absolutely sure that didn't happen, then even though the ventilation has been sorted out, uh, you can refer back to the coronacast that we did when we talked about the spread to healthcare workers in Victoria. It showed that it was very easy for ventilation to carry aerosols in the air quite large distances. So that would have to be the second most likely reason. You know, Down the list would be the person who supposedly caught the virus from the family of five, uh, the couple that did they were incubating for a long period of time, a very, very long period of time, which really does put it in the realms of being extremely unlikely. The fact that it was the identical virus, it's possible that you've got genomically identical viruses caught independently, but uh, again, you know, unlikely. They came from different countries. Yeah, and there is a strong coincidence here. So then you think, well, contact on surfaces, there really haven't been that many cases of contact spread from the virus. We've covered this many times on coronacast. It's a very unusual form of spread, still possible. So there's various things that we know about, about this virus. It's unlikely we're going to learn something new. But going to yesterday's coronacast topic, which is we thought that the variant was highly contagious. Well, this is the variant and it clearly is highly contagious. Mm. And the Emergency Services Minister, Lisa Neville, talked about this yesterday and said that the assumption that they were working on, at least for the time being, was that the viral load of the family was so high, so five people all having coronavirus, that that's, that they're giving it off um, as they breathe and cough or whatever, and that perhaps that was how it's travelled through the hotel just by opening the door. And we know a bit more about viral load. There's some fresh research that's just come out about viral load and what it means. Yeah, and we can refer back to yesterday's coronacast as well, as why didn't this person in Perth, we've got zero days, day after day here, spread it. And um, I think one of the things we talked about was viral load, that he wasn't producing very much virus, therefore wasn't that infectious, even though he was carrying a contagious virus. This is a study from last year, you know, published now, but as a study done last year in Spain where they tried to look at whether or not hydroxychloroquine would, uh, remember hydroxychloroquine in those diamond distant days, would actually work in preventing transmission. So they had a group of people where they were doing very intense viral studies on them and following them through in a randomized trial of hydroxychloroquine. So they were monitored very closely. And long story short, well, first of all, hydroxychloroquine didn't work. But secondly, the likelihood that they were going to transmit was directly related to how much virus, which makes sense, they were producing. So viral load is, as they say in this study, a leading driver of SARS-CoV-2 transmission. So we know that. And that's, you know, that's a very sensible suggestion on the part of the minister. So you've mentioned hydroxychloroquine there, and that was a big 
item in, especially on social media for a while, that people thought that it was going to be a good tool for us in fighting coronavirus and the evidence hasn't played out in its favour. But another drug that we've heard a lot about in, at least in the popular media and on social media the last few days is ivermectin. So can we just reset on what we do and don't know about how useful or unuseful ivermectin is with fighting coronavirus? And I just want, before I start, I just want to nail hydroxychloroquine. It doesn't work. Huge randomized trial shows it just doesn't work. So let's just move that to the side. Ivermectin is a bit more tantalizing that it's possible it could work. And the evidence comes from research at Monash University, which shows that in the test tube, it seems to have an anti-SARS-CoV-2 effect. They've also found that prior to SARS-CoV-2 coming along, there were other viruses that in the test tube, Uh, ivermectin seemed to have an effect on, even though it's an antiparasite drug rather than antiviral drug. That's not out of court that it could have an antiviral effect. The strongest evidence, but it's still not strong evidence that you would use it, comes from studies in Africa which show that African countries where they use ivermectin routinely to prevent parasitic infection, particularly river brinelet, so they're, they're taking it all the time as a prophylactic, have lower than average rates of COVID-19. And that's not cause and effect, that's an association. So ivermectin nations seem to have lower COVID-19, correcting for all other variables. And that's you know published studies. So the circumstantial evidence that it could work, laboratory evidence, unfortunately so far there's no clinical trial evidence. So it's not strong enough that you would go out and actually use it. Although people are suggesting that if you did find that out, in countries where it's going to be a while before they get the vaccine, maybe ivermectin could be used as a prophylactic to reduce transmission. But that's not proven yet. And the danger there is that if you do that, and it doesn't, then you could actually create a worse pandemic. So the research that we've got so far is really very much early stages in vitro, as they say, like still in the test tube stage. Do we know whether they've got clinical trials underway to look into this in more detail? Yes, there are quite a few clinical trials. Uh, people go back into the Health Report podcast. We did an interview on the Health Report podca- in the Health Report on uh, on this with a researcher at Monash University, the same group that found the, the effect in the test tube. You know, a very credible group. There are clinical trials going around the world and some are showing promise, but yet to be published. So on clinical trials, one of the early coronavirus vaccines cabs off the rank was out of Russia, the Sputnik V. And one of the criticisms that, or the observations that we made was that it didn't have a clinical trial. So it was really hard for us to know if it was as effective as was being claimed by Russia. But now there are clinical trial results that have been published in a journal that's undergone the peer review process. And it's looking pretty good. You know, we've said for now some months that on CoronaCast that the Russian vaccine could actually be a good vaccine, but it was being hobbled by poor research and a rush to get it into, uh, into clinical practice. Just a little bit of technical detail. This is a bit like the Astra vaccine, except it's not a chimpanzee virus, but it is another ad- so-called adenovirus, another upper respiratory virus uh, that carries the genetic message into the cell. My understanding of this is that they use two different viruses for the two doses so that you don't get any resistance to the first vaccine on the second dose, so you get a good boost. And they uh, did 21-day interval between the first dose and the second dose uh, with the two different viruses carrying the genetic message into the cell. So the results showed 
in a sample of about 20,000 people, an overall effective efficacy at preventing disease of 91% and much higher than that, almost 100% in terms of severe disease, which is pretty much like all the other vaccines, but a much higher performance than the Astra vaccine, perhaps because of these two separate viruses. You know, they published this in a peer-reviewed journal, so you have to say that it uh, looks like being legit you know, and a serious contender. Do you think we'll see it rolled out more in more countries now that this uh, evidence has come and been published? I would have thought so. I would have thought this, uh, assuming that they hand over the raw data to the regulators. Largely, when you do a peer review of a study like this, you see the data they give you that they've based the results on. You don't see all the data that are given to regulators. So for a regulator to approve this vaccine, a, a reputable regulator, they would want to see all the raw data. Um, they really would want to get into the weeds very, very deeply to see it, which is what they would have done with Pfizer and it's what they're doing right now with Astra. And if that bears up with that, then yes, it'll get approved. It'll be great to have a new vaccine with this sort of efficacy. And on that, the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia has had a closer look at the Pfizer shot and its link to the deaths of elderly people in Norway, which there was a question mark around whether those were linked, and they've said that there's no risk um, for the vaccine among elderly patients. Which is great news. So that is all we have time for on CoronaCast today, but we'll be back tomorrow, obviously, with plenty more detail on this and, of course, everyone's favourite segment, Quickfire Friday. If you've got a question or a comment, why don't you go to our website, abc.net.au slash coronacast. Click on Ask a Question and mention Coronacast on the way through. And we'll see you next time. See you then. 